Welcome again, and so glad that you're with us. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 120. Psalm 120, right in the middle of the Scriptures. You'll find the book of Psalms. As you turn there, I want to give you a couple more uh, updates. And uh, the first one is that next Sunday we're going to have um, a congregational meeting in the evening. So we'll have a soup Sunday uh, that we will you know, gather here at the church and have dinner together. Following dinner, we're going to have a brief congregational meeting where we are uh, set to elect two new uh, elders that we have trained and that uh, the, the session of our church, which is the, the group of elders um, who govern this church, are recommending candidates for you to elect as new elders. And so you will receive bios for them. We were working on those this week, and we, you will have those in your inbox tomorrow. Uh, and you can, of course, send any questions to us. We'd love to answer those. Uh, but that's an important uh, time to be there. If you're a member of this church, you'll be able to vote on these elders. And uh, if, if you're not a member, then you're most welcome to come and attend. Our, our, you know, our meetings are open to the public, so anybody can come to them. We'd love to have you, and we'd love to have you before that for soup as well. So second update is some of you are probably wondering how things are going with the ABLE project. That is our uh, campaign where we have raised funds. Many of you have given so generously uh, towards the renovation of this building that God blessed us with. There is a long story of God's uh, provision to us as a church, a church plant that uh, then just particularized, just became a a full uh, church last year. And God has given us this building and we're trying to be good stewards of it. And so you'll notice we do have bathrooms renovated now, and we're moving next into this, this room, the sanctuary. So a little bit of heads up over the coming weeks and a couple of months or beyond, we're going to have some changes in here, and it's going to be, uh, could be a bit dusty. We're going to do our best to, to clean it up, uh, but exciting new things happening. For instance, we're going to start this week, I think, that's what I've heard on removing some of this uh, drywall up here and exposing the beams uh, that you see throughout the rest of the, of the sanctuary up here. There's two more rows of those, and we want those open. Uh, don't worry. God is able. will be preserved. So don't send me that email uh, above me. If you don't know, that's part of our story. That's why we call it the ABLE uh, Project. So uh, we'll get that down but before we tear everything down. Uh, but lots of other things coming. We're going to get these garage-style lighting out of here. You know, God's given us so much um, just blessing, and we are so excited to uh, to see these changes um, in the coming weeks. But be patient with us as you'll see some evidence of the work that we're doing in the coming weeks. Beginning a series today on the Psalms of Ascent. I love this section of the scripture. If you don't know, the Psalms of Ascent are the 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and they are together as a group. Uh, I failed to, to get this in the bulletin this week. It's totally my fault. Uh, the very first words of Psalm 120 that we're going to read in just a moment should say a song of ascents as part of the Bible. Sometimes the Psalms give us titles, and those are actually part of the Bible. So a song of ascents, sometimes it, it appears as a little, um, you know, many capital letters, small uh, you know, title, that's actually in the scriptures when you see those, when you see musical direction over the Psalms, or in this case, a song of ascents. And uh, these, each of these Psalms have that little title. And you may have no idea uh, what that is or what that means. And maybe you've read one in the past, and you're like, I don't know what song of ascents means. And we're going to get into that today. 
But the timing of this series is strategic. It was uh, last year at this very time, I believe even this very Sunday last year, where we started a series on the ascension of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We talked about the ascension. Why were we talking about the ascension? If you don't know, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. And we talked about the ascension of the Lord because we were becoming Ascension Church of Phoenix. And I wanted you to know what the ascension was, what it means, the importance of of Christ's dominion over all, that he ascended into heaven, he reigns over all. And also to see that this is one of the primary pictures that we're given in Scripture of our life, our journey with God. It is a journey of ascent. And so we thought it would be cool to start again the new year, one year later, with a series on the ascension. But this time we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent, these songs that the Israelites would sing as they go up to Jerusalem. They ascend to the holy city of God picturing for us the life with God that is an ascent as well. So that's what we're going to be looking at. We'll read Psalm 120 first this morning. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I made my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start a bit differently today. Today is the beginning of this series, and I want to introduce the series to you for the first half and then have a mini-sermon after that talking about Psalm 120, so a bit unusual, but I think it's important. And I want to introduce it in a somewhat of a different way, beginning by talking about stories. And I think what I'm doing will become clear to you as we go along. Stories are important for a culture. Stories have arcs. That's the way that we talk about a story, a story arc. And when we say that, hopefully maybe some of you are picturing an actual rising hill and then a falling descent. The story arc. The arc of the story tells us how the story works. If you have been in an English class before, maybe a drama class, maybe you have studied the way that story arcs work. Typically, we have beginnings. We have the first elements of the story. Then we have a, uh, an inciting incident. Maybe something happens that changes it and that sets the story in motion. And then there's rising action where there, there is a, you know, a sense of that things are happening towards the conclusion. And then at the top of the arc, if you reach the top, we call that the climax. And then on the other side of the arc, when it starts to fall, we call that falling action. And then there is resolution, denouement. There is a finishing of the story. Stories have arcs, and stories are journeys that we go on together. Every good story has a big arc. But the best stories have arcs within the arc. There is rising and falling action happening all the time. The best stories have stories nestled within them. So you can think about a famous story like Lord of the Rings. The big story is the destruction of the ring, right? There's a big plot to get to Mount Doom, to get rid of the ring and to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. That's the story arc. 
But within that, there are other arcs, like the friendship between Frodo and Sam, and you know, other things like who will be the king of Gondor. That's a whole story within the story. Stories nestled within stories. My family was here at Christmas uh, this year, and we were sitting around the table talking about our favorite TV shows and that we were enjoying. And my brother said about his wife, Alex, my sister-in-law, Alex has seen so many shows that she knows exactly what will happen. It doesn't matter what show it is, she has seen so much that she understands them so much. Even the surprises, even things that nobody else sees coming, she can always see it. She's so good she could be a writer for TV. That's what he said. That's how good she is at knowing how stories work. And that stuck with me as I was thinking this week about stories, that skill set of being able to see stories within the story, to see how things might unfold. And when we come to the greatest story, the biggest story that's ever been told, the story of all creation, the story of the scriptures, I want us to have a skill set where we understand how the stories work, to see how the story works, but within it, how other stories are nestled in. I want us to know the story arc so well that we can see it coming, that we know who God is and that this is how he works. The way that the scriptures do this is they give us a great story. And I'm actually going to take a few minutes now to tell you four story arcs within the Bible that will lead us directly to Psalm 120, as you, you will see. The first story is the biggest story. It's the story in which every other story is nestled. Sometimes we talk about the story of the world like this in four parts. That there is creation, there is fall or rebellion, that there is redemption, and then there is consummation. That's the way that we put it. This is the story that we have. It's important to know the story. The story of God is that it began with a good creation. He created things good. Why is that important? Because it didn't begin in chaos. It didn't begin with, with rebellion. It began with goodness. And that is important to the story. But if you know the story, quickly there is a fall. There is a rebellion against God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, and us in them, the scriptures say, sinned against God and introduced destruction into the world. The rest of the story of the scripture is really about leading to the point of redemption where Jesus Christ comes, the God-man who lives a perfect life. He dies an atoning death for us. He's raised from the dead and he promises a second coming. He ascends into heaven. He's victorious over the dead. And then we have the consummation. That while we wait, this is where we find ourselves in the story. We wait the consummation. That is the, where all sad things come untrue. Where heaven and earth meet. Where everything that is good is restored and made good again. That is the story. The way that the Bible talks about the story quite often is that it's a journey from one end to the other, that we are actually a pilgrim people, that we are strangers and aliens in this world moving towards God. A life in God is the, the journey metaphor. Now, that's the big story. That's the first story arc. It's beautiful. It's sweeping. It's everything. Within that, there's another story arc. It's the story of Israel. And you'll see how this story reflects and contributes to the greater story. The children of Israel, they were 
They were God's chosen people. It began well with God's call to Abraham, but then they were enslaved. And the story goes like this. They were in distress and they were called out of Egypt by God's mighty hand and brought into a wilderness wandering. And then eventually they were given a promised land, a land that had been sworn to them. And so you, how you see the story of Israel reflects the story of the whole world, that they were in distress and God called and helped them and they, they were brought to the land of promise. Just like us, pilgrim people who were in this bigger story, who were going now to God's promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. There's a story within the story on a smaller scale. Israel has done the journey of the whole world. Now, what's interesting is we can go one layer deeper. Israel itself, they recreated that story every single year, multiple times a year. They actually, in worshiping God in the temple, would do that story again. They would recreate their coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land by leaving their homes and traveling to Jerusalem where they would worship the Lord. They would arrive again at Mount Zion, just like their fathers and mothers and grandfathers before them had done. They would recreate the story on a smaller scale. They would pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and when they did, they traveled up, because topographically, Jerusalem is the highest point around, and Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that is the Temple Mount is the highest place in Jerusalem. So they would travel to Zion, and as they did so, they would be going uphill. They'd be going toward God, toward Mount Zion. Three times a year, they would pilgrimage to this place if they were ultra-faithful. Now, we have evidence of people just going once a year, like Elkanah, the, uh, the husband of Hannah, would go once a year to Jerusalem. This is apparently common practice but actually, the way that God had designed it was for them to come three times a year, three different feasts where they would worship God. The first was Passover. In Passover, they would celebrate the Old Testament story of being passed over. They, they put blood on the, on the outside of their uh, doorposts, and the, the angel of death passed over them because they were atoned for, they were cared for by God, and they celebrated that Passover at the Passover feast. The second pilgrimage was the harvest festival or the first fruits. They would gather the best of their crops, the first crops, and put them in baskets and carry them to Jerusalem, present them to the, to the priest, and give them the first fruits. The third was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Weeks, where for eight days they would live in tents. That's what the word tabernacle means. They would recreate the wilderness wanderings, and they would live in tents for eight days, wave palm branches, celebrating that God had brought them to a promised land. They were no longer tabernacling. They had a place to be. So these are the feasts that they would celebrate, and they would go and worship God, recreating the story. At some point in Israel's history, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Someone put together psalms, a miniature hymn book that would be for the purpose of God's people to sing as they ascended to Jerusalem. And these are the songs of ascent. 
As they ascended to Jerusalem, they would sing together. And these psalms that we're going to be looking at are beautifully edited together to show us that journey. In fact, the psalms themselves go on the journey. We begin today in Psalm 120. It talks about the outskirts of Israel, outside of Israel. And the last psalms, Psalm 132 through 34, are really about Zion, Mount Zion, where they're going. So the psalms themselves tell us, a journey. They're very carefully and beautifully put together. Who wrote these psalms? Well, there's at least three authors. The very middle psalm, Psalm 127, is written by Solomon. So if you think about 15 psalms having an odd number, there's an actual middle psalm and an equal number on both sides. Psalm 127 was written by Solomon very appropriately, as it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And Solomon wrote that presumably about his building the temple. On either side, there are seven psalms. Two psalms on either side of Solomon's song were written by David, attributed to him. So that leaves five anonymous psalms on either side of Psalm 127. I'm just showing you the beauty of how this is put together. Who wrote those psalms? We don't know. There is a strong biblical tradition that they were perhaps written by King Hezekiah, a a later king in Israel's history, and perhaps when the Psalms of Ascent fully and finally came together. We're we're told in the scripture that Hezekiah was a liturgist. He was a songwriter. He was interested in the worship of God's people, and so perhaps that is true. You can see how the Psalms themselves fit into the story of Israel, which which fits into the story of the whole world. So I gave you three story arcs, but there's a fourth one. I'm going even smaller. This is the last one, I promise. Within the Psalms of Ascent, there is a pattern and a story that unfolds. In fact, it repeats five times, three Psalms, three Psalms, three Psalms in a row throughout. You can see thematically how these Psalms work together. It's very fascinating. I'm not the first person to see this. There's many scholars who have noticed that there are themes within the Psalms of Ascent, and they can be summarized like this. The first Psalm will talk about distress. The second Psalm will talk about help. And the third Psalm will talk about arrival, the house of God, the people of God, and arrival. Distress help, arrival. You can see it in the first three Psalms. Psalm 120, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Distress. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? It's a Psalm about the help of God. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Arrival. This pattern repeats. And so this is A story arc within the story arc, within the story arc, within the story arc. This is how God deals with his people. It's beautifully laid out for us. Five times this pattern repeats. So here's what I want us to see. The story arc of our life with God can be summarized like this. Distress, help, arrival. This is how it repeats That's true on the smallest story arc of the Bible all the way to the greatest story that's ever told, all of creation to consummation. Our lives are a journey that are heading towards a resolution. What you sense and what you know to be the case that you are moving from something to something is true. 
God finds us in our distress. He helps us, and then he brings us home. It's the greatest story ever told. In the remaining time that we have this morning, I want to just take the first step in the journey with Psalm 120. And it begins in distress. Of course, the true story of the world began with creation, and it was a good start. But ever since then, none of us have been born into a time of, of goodness. There has always been distress ever since the fall. And so I'd like to look at this today. Ever since the fall, true faith must be practiced in the midst of distress. The first journey, the first step in the journey is going to be to recognize that we are in a place of hostility. Why are we distressed? We are opposed. We have enemies. We have broken families. We are broken individuals. We have broken institutions. There are spiritual beings, the scripture says, arrayed against us. We are swimming upstream. Following God in distress is the only option in a broken world. It's the only way to begin the journey because this is the environment where God has us. It's part of the story. It's in distress that we find God. Look at verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. The start of the journey with God is distress, recognition that we are in a place that is hard to be and it can be no other way. I've had four children. And I've seen all of them born. And every single one of them came out crying. I want you to think about birth. You can't think about your own birth. Every single one of us that's been in this room has experienced the trauma of birth and forgotten it by God's grace. It's traumatic. Think about it. This child, this little helpless being in a place of complete warmth, safety, and security. In the womb. With the right temperature. And fed. This is the life that it knows until it comes into the world. And immediately it's distressing, isn't it? To watch this baby come into the world and there's nothing that you can even say to it to prepare it. You can't speak to a baby in the womb and say, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be distressing. But on the other side, we're going to take care of you and you're going to learn to cope. You can't do that. All of us come into this world in distress. This has been true since the curse fell because Eve was told that in pain... You will give birth. This is a distressing experience. Perhaps why Jesus also talks about the rebirth, the metaphor of of being saved as being born again, which is bewildering to Nicodemus, who he tells it to, how can I be born again? In a sense, he's putting him in distress. He's saying, look, you've you've got to come into this without knowing things and without knowing if you're going to be okay. If you begin to have a life with God today or any day, or if you're returning 
Perhaps you've walked away from him and now you're returning to him. You should expect distress. This is the journey. It's in an environment of distress. The scriptures are completely honest about this. Jesus himself says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the kind of distress that the psalmist feels as he begins the journey He realizes how far from God he is. He realizes how distressing his situation is. Now, there are two things with our remaining time I want us to see about this distress that the psalmist mentions. I'll do so briefly. He says there's two things that makes the world a place of distress primarily. Number one is the lies. And number two is hostility. Look with me at verse two. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. He begins by saying, deliver me from deceitful tongues, lying lips. Why would he begin with lies? Why is that distressing to the psalmist? Well, if you think about it, It was a lie that started this mess. You shall not surely die. What the serpent said to Adam and Eve. Direct contradiction to the truth. God said on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The lie is what from the beginning. And ever since then, lies and deceit have distorted the truth. What deceit really is, if you think about it, is words spoken that change the plausibility of something. When we say something that is not true, we're actually affecting people and saying, what you plausibly thought was good, true, or beautiful is not anymore. And this is the first drag on the Christian. It's distressing. What is true? What kind of things can I hold on to in this world? Words change the plausibility of the truth. Perhaps they change the plausibility of God's existence. Perhaps they change the plausibility of God's goodness. Words have the power to do that. Perhaps you know, like me, many. Some or many or one, at least, person who has walked away from the Christian faith, who once proclaimed the name of Christ, no longer does so. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you are at the brink of that. You are wrestling with that. You wonder about the plausibility, the plausibility of God, His existence, His goodness, His truth. And if you're there this morning, look, there's almost nobody in this room who hasn't been there. This is a place of grace, safety, This is a place where we can ask those questions. We're not scared by those questions. We don't need to stamp them out with with platitudes. But I do have a responsibility to say to you, 
Don't be deceived. Just because somebody says something and it changes something in you doesn't mean that it's not the truth. Because words have the power to do that. Perhaps words spoken by someone, by a professor, someone learned, perhaps harsh words spoken by a friend, perhaps someone said something to hurt you, perhaps someone lived a certain way that their words didn't match. There's all kinds of ways that deceit can, can cause us to walk away from the truth. Words change the plausibility of what we believe. That's why the psalmist says, deliver me from a lying tongue, deceitful tongue, a lying lips. If words have such power, I, I want to be in the truth so much that I'm delivered from the possible lies. And this has always been the case that the world, that the environment in which our faith is practiced is a place of deception. And we live in a culture where lies are the norm. Just like the psalmist did. Just like every age has ever since the fall. And we're told lies. Like the self is the highest good. Like that we can't define things. We can't know the truth. We can't define Sexuality, we can't define gender, we can't define goodness, we can't define love, that these are things that are off limits to us because there's a greater enlightenment. We could sit here all day and talk about all those things. This is what we believe, the scriptures teach, and this is how it's different, how it's said differently in our culture. What the psalmist does is reminds himself that his trust is that the truth will prevail. Look at verse 3. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? What's going to happen to the deceit is what he's saying there, basically. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. He says what's going to happen is that lies and falsehood, that old serpent of old who was the liar from the beginning, and all of the subsequent lies that come will be destroyed. Like in battle. They will be pierced with arrows and then they will be destroyed in a consuming fire. That is the, goal, the coals of the broom tree here. That's like charcoal, that probably a juniper tree. It's um, slow burning wood used to set fire to all the paraphernalia from the battle. If you think seeing in movies, pile up all of the stuff from battle and burn it. That's the image here. Basically, he's saying truth will prevail. Lies will be destroyed. One day, all lies will cease, and there will only be truth. I'm trusting in that. Deliver me in the meantime from believing lies. The second source of his distress is hostility or a hostile environment. He says in verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Woe to me, he says. Woe. That's a common word. The word oi means oh. But here is the only place in Scripture where a little bit of extra is added to the word. It's an onomatopoeia, where the sound itself gives you the meaning. Oi, ah. It's a sigh. 
It's a sigh. Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. What is it talking about? Meshach and Kedar, two biblical names in the Bible. Meshach was the son of Japheth, who was the son of Noah. Noah had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. One of Japheth's sons was Meshach. And that name, whether it's fair or not, I don't know exactly, but later in the scriptures was developed, this was known as a slave trader, this abominable person, Meshach. And then a whole region was named after north of Israel, outside of Israel. There's a desolate place that they called Meshach. Kedar is to the southeast of Israel. And Kedar was the second son of Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar. And these people were known, were an ominous group. They dwelt in black tents. They were warlike. They were nomadic. They were fearful to the people of Israel. These places are not close to each other. Meshach was way north, Kedar's way south. He's saying, basically, I dwell in places like this, outside of Israel, outside of the, the, the plans and purposes of God, and I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm living in these hostile places, these remote places, away from God. It's a hostile environment. These are both very warlike places, and they, they, had, they were known for their, well, their arrow shooting, which is an interesting reference to the warrior sharp arrows before in the passage, but... He says in verse 7, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. Literally just says, I am peace. I am peace itself. I'm trying to be peace. But when I speak, they are for war. It's a hostile environment. I live in a place that is hostile to my faith, in other words. These are morally questionable places. And it's a picture of a faithful person trying to be at peace, trying to find their way toward God in a hostile environment. And it makes walking with God hard. This is the reality. In my distress is where God finds each one of us. When you are born again as a believer and every day thereafter until the consummation, you will live in an environment that is distressing to your faith. You will combat lies and hostility. The Bible is clear about this. So what do we do? I want to ask you a final question this morning as we close. What do, what do you do in distress? What do you do in distress? What is your go-to solution? We've established that we're all going to experience it. Do you try to take it head on? Do you try to solve your distress? Do you try to overcome it yourself? Do you try to say, I can handle this distress? No matter what, I've got this. This is the kind of self-talk we sometimes have. How many of us hide from distress, put our head down in the sand, don't deal with reality? The distressing things in our life we tend to brush past with 
light words and ignoring it. Some of us try to eat and drink our distress away. Some of us unload our stress, distress on family members, hoping that someone else can bear the burden of our distress. There's all kinds of things that we do in distress. It's a helpful question to think, in my distress, what do I do? What do you do in distress? The psalmist says that he calls on the name of the Lord. Verse 1, in my distress, I called on the name of the Lord and he answered me. Different from the rest of the psalm, this is in past tense. This is written from a place of arrival. Remembering back, in my distress, what I did was I called on the Lord and with the benefit of more of the story, I see that He's answered me. And then he enters back into what it was like, though. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in Meshach, I'm in Kedar, I'm in the place of lying lips. And, and the, both of those things are true. But this is his conclusion. That the way out of distress is calling on the name of the Lord. Because he is the one who, in the unfolding story, will help us, we're going to see next week, and bring us home. This is what God does. This is what God has always done. When Israel cried out to the Lord, He heard their cries and He brought them out of Egypt. This is His might that He does this. He helps His people and then He brought them to the land that He promised them. This is what He's done over and over again. He hears the cries of His people in their distress and He answers them. He hears the distress of the entire world. He knows intimately our distress, and in our crying out as humanity to Him, God was pleased to send us His Son. He answered the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, who took the distress of all the world and bore it in His own body. He lived in distress. He, he ate and drank around distress. He entered into distress. And he felt the pains of death and hell. He experienced the greatest distress so that in his body, all of the distress could be borne out. And in his resurrection, all of the life that we want and need in God can be found. What's interesting is why the story didn't end there? Isn't that the biggest question? Why didn't Jesus bring the consummation? This is a story the scriptures wrestle with. If Jesus has come, why still the distress? Why is it going on? This is what cry out to the why? Why do you continue to do this? In his good purposes, the story is not over. Just like Israel had to have felt that too. They're 400 years in Captivity, and they say, We're crying out to the Lord. Why does He not bring help and salvation? But His plan was His plan. And He did answer them. 
And he did bring them salvation and help. And now we have to live with that same faith that we are calling out to the Lord, which is answered in Jesus Christ, will be fully and finally answered in the consummation and everything made right. If you call on the name of the Lord now, you will get his son, Jesus Christ. And he will give you faith to know that your call has been answered and that you have been delivered personally. And then you wait with all of us for him to remove all distress from the world. I'll close with this quote from J.W. Burgon, who was an Anglican pastor in the 19th century. He says this, See the wondrous advantage of trouble. So good. That it makes us call upon God. And again, see the wondrous readiness of mercy that when he, we call, he heareth us. There is an advantage in trouble. The fact that we were born into distress is alarming. It is hard to cope with for every single one of us. We were honest about that. But we have now a reason to call upon God, to call out in our distress, and he will answer us. The readiness of mercy is found only in God through Jesus Christ. So call upon him in your distress, and you will be answered with faith in Christ. Let's pray.